Can't thank you enough. Sean uh, Acor, a psychologist who teaches at Harvard, suggests that we can train our brains to become more grateful by setting aside just five minutes a day for practicing gratitude. He cites a one-week study in which people were asked to take five minutes a day at the same time every day to write down three things they were thankful for. They didn't have to be big things, but they had to be concrete and specific, such as, I'm thankful for the delicious thigh takeout dinner I had last night, or I'm thankful that my daughter gave me a hug, or I'm thankful that my boss complimented my work. The participants simply expressed thanks for three specific things at the same time every day. At the end of one month, the researchers followed up and found that those who practiced gratitude, including those who stopped the exercise after one week, were happier and less depressed. Remarkably, after three months, the participants who had been part of the one-week experiment were still more joyful and content. Incredibly, after the six-month mark, they were still happier, less anxious, and less depressed. The researchers hypothesized that the simple practice of writing down three thanksgivings a day over the course of a week primed the participants' minds to search for the good in their lives. Can you imagine if you would just get in the habit of doing that all the time and not just for one week out of the year, you know? Um, here's, the, here's the reality, and I've shared this before, and if you don't know it, you need to know it. Gratitude is good for your health. One of the one of the best things you can do for your health is learn to be a grateful person. Learn how to have gratitude in your heart, how to express that gratitude. In fact, um, here's what Paul writes, and I think this is probably why Paul writes this. Um, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And look what the Holy Spirit does for us, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ giving thanks always and for everything. And he, over in um, 1 Thessalonians, he says it this way, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, which, which means that's just an attitude of prayer that we carry with us throughout the day. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And giving thanks in all things, that's just having, again, like a prayerful attitude, a grateful attitude that just carries with us everything we do. It's just instinctive to who we are. And when we're walking in the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh, that is exactly what will come out of us. So we see Paul's qualifiers here for Thanksgiving. His Thanksgiving qualifiers, be thankful for everything and in everything. And that's the simple reality. This morning, as we talk about the expression of a grateful heart and the greatest threat to our gratitude, I want to start here. I want to talk about a tale of two roots. And so I'm always talking about these two trees right in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the spirit or, or life and the tree of death or the flesh and the two trees that Adam and Eve were confronted with and how they are the choice we make every day of our life. And I want you to think about those two trees and each of those trees has a very prime root that runs right up to that tree. And I want you to think about the tree, first of all, of the fruit of the, the, the tree of, of life or uh, the tree of, of the spirit. And it's got this root of gratitude. And I want you to think about how that root of gratitude from the Holy Spirit leads to all the other fruit. Just think about how a grateful person will be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, kind, good, full of self-control, faithfulness, and thankfulness. I mean, thankfulness is the specific uh, actions of gratitude that are in our heart. 
All of that comes from a gratitude, a root of gratitude that runs up out of that tree. When we're living in the Spirit, this is just instinctively what comes out of our lives. Now, at the same time, though, I want you to think about the reality. What is the biggest threat to our gratitude? Think about it this way. If gratitude is so good for our health, if it is so important to us in our spiritual walk and in just everyday living, then you can, be a, you can rest assured that Satan will want to do all he can, right? To steal our gratitude. Satan will want us to be unhappy and ungrateful people. And so what is the biggest threat? Well, I got one word for you this morning. And when I share, you, share this word with you, you're all gonna relate to it immediately. And you'll be able to see and look into your own home and into your own, own life and in your own reality and see the, re, the, the, the significance of this word. But if you wanted to find uh, this root that I'm going to talk about here, go back to Genesis 3. Go back to those true trees. Go back to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? And Satan comes along. And, and what does Satan do to them? Satan says, you know, they've got, they got this huge garden of abundance. All of the whole garden is for them, right? The whole, the whole garden is for them. There's just one tree they can't have. And Satan says, hey, but look at that tree. Look at that, and that tree will be good for your health, and that, that tree will be really good for you. And you know what? You're entitled to that tree, because this is your garden. And you see, there's that root I want to think about today, that root of entitlement. There's a root of gratitude, but then there's a root of entitlement, and that is the biggest threat to our gratitude. When we live entitled lives and we, we have this, we struggle with this in our relationships, we struggle with this at work, we struggle with this just out in everyday living. We struggle with this in our, in our relationship with God. And so here comes Satan and says to Adam and Eve, well, what about that tree? You're entitled to that tree because that tree will be good for you. It'll, it'll be really beneficial to you if you take the fruit off of that tree. And, um, and yet, you, you know what Satan caused them to do is they didn't focus on everything they had. They focused on what? the one thing they didn't have and he made them feel entitled to that tree because it would be really 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 good for them walking around here and sat my glasses down like boy what did i do so there's that root of entitlement i want you to think about how that root of entitlement really affects our life think about the fruit of that think about how the root of entitlement will lead to sorrow will lead to stress impatience and anger to unkindness, to resentment. You ever resented somebody because you felt entitled to something they had? Envy, jealousy, hate, selfishness, self-indulgence, a complaining spirit. All of that is a reality of a sense of entitlement, a root of entitlement that runs up. And when we're living in the flesh, that is exactly what our struggle is. Now, if gratitude is good for our health, it's easy to see how entitlement is actually detrimental to our health. It has a negative, negative, negative effect on us. Now, Paul, he has an answer. He has an answer for the entitlement that we struggle with. And here's a great verse in 1 Corinthians 15. And think about Paul, because think about the Apostle Paul who had a great lineage, a great heritage, came from a very good tribe of Israel. He was well-educated, uh, had a lot of zeal, knew the law inside and out. He had a lot of good things going for him. And then here's what Paul said when, once he came to Christ. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And, and Paul came to the point of realizing that all the stuff that he thought made him something 
was really nothing. And everything that made him something was simply the grace of God at work in his life. And so Paul found an answer for this idea of entitlement. I'm entitled to, you know, be well-respected. I'm entitled to positions of authority. I'm entitled to be successful. I'm entitled to all this. And, and he found his answer in the gospel. You look into the gospel, you look into what Christ did for us at the cross and how he paid the price for our sin and how he makes us a brand new creation in him. And we look at that and the gospel just, the grace of God just takes away any entitlement that we would think we have. We're not entitled really to anything. Here's our big idea today. We have more than enough grace, think about this, more than enough grace to eliminate the entitlement working to our detriment. We have more than enough grace to eliminate the entitlement that is working to our detriment. We do. The grace that comes from God that pours into our life will take away any of the entitlement that we think we have. And, and the reality is most of our ungratefulness, most of our unhappiness in life, it just comes from that that sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to things and I didn't get what I'm entitled to and I'm not going to be happy and I'm stressed out trying to get the things I think I'm entitled to and I'm angry at you because you've got things that I think I'm entitled to and I don't have them and that's just the way, that's just the way it works. So what I want to do this morning is give you three expressions of a grateful heart, three expressions that will help us see really this, uh, this sense that I'm not, bitten by the entitlement bug, that that's not the root that's running through my life. Uh, but there's a different root, a root of gratitude. And so here's three expressions of a grateful heart today, and I think we'll all relate to these very easily. The first one is simply this. It is a heart of joy. A heart of joy. A grateful heart is expressed through a heart of joy. Uh, here's the question. Do you, have a, do you normally have a heart of joy? Think about that. You see, an entitled heart will not be a joyful heart because it's always focused on what it doesn't have. And that's where the envy, the jealousy, the anger, the, the resentment and such come in. And this is, really, this is really sad for Christians because of all the blessings we have in Christ that we just will fail to realize. All the grace he's poured into our life that we just miss because we have this sense of entitlement. And so a true heart of joy is the believer who enjoys God by celebrating life. Now, the truth is, in Christ, we have enough. We have enough joy to celebrate life. We've been talking about enough now. This is our 10th week, our final message in this series. Christ is sufficient. He is enough. He is everything that we need in life. And when we have him, we have more than enough. And so I want us to think about that reality of how we have enough in Christ. We have enough joy in Christ to celebrate life. Now, there's a great example in 2 Corinthians 9. The context in this passage is quite interesting. Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth to follow the amazing and generous example of the churches of Macedonia in helping the struggling churches of Jerusalem. The churches of Jerusalem had fallen on some really, really, really hard times. And so the churches at Macedonia, despite their own deep poverty and struggle, they had risen up to help them financially in incredible ways. And so Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to follow that example and so listen to what paul says about giving i think this is really powerful we think about enjoying god by celebrating life here's what he says the point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God loves a cheerful giver. That Greek word, I love it. It's hilarious. He loves a hilarious giver. But here's the point. We have enough joy to celebrate giving. We do. And we give. And and I don't share that this morning to compel us all to give more. That's not the point. I think we have a church full of very generous people. We really do. Uh, I've just seen that time and again since we moved in the building here a year and a half ago. Things people have just taken upon themselves to come in and take care of. Donations people have made. Uh, It's been amazing. We We have a very generous church. But, but just the reality there when you think about how we have enough joy in our life. Gratitude produces enough joy that we, we can enjoy giving. And, and I can say that's true. And I can tell you my own experience. The one thing, since I've been married now 25 years, the one thing God did in my life was I have really come to the point, I love to give. I love to give more than I love to pay any other bill I have to pay. I just love to give. I think there's a joy that we can find when it comes to giving. And you know, think about the reality of, of why we give. Why does God want us to give? It shows that God is first in our life. It shows our dependence on God. But then number three, it's, it's because it shows our gratitude to God. We give and we just say, thank you, Lord, for all you've done for me and my family. And that's why we come every week and we, we give. And we call it a joy. We don't even take an offering up here. We call it a joy box. And you just come over there and can joyfully Give your gifts to the Lord. And uh, giving is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And you see how entitlement works against that? If we go out and we work and we make all this money and think, well, I'm entitled to it all because I earned it all, then we miss the whole point. That everything we have comes from what? The hand of God. The health I have to go out and earn what I earn comes from the gracious hand of God. And so that's just a beautiful thing. In fact, remember, we think about having enough joy for celebrating life. Think about how Paul said that we are to be thankful for what? All things at all times. We have enough joy to celebrate even in our adversity, even in the struggles that we go through. And Paul really exemplified this, of course, more than anything. Paul just seemed to find joy in all the adversity that he faced in life. Think about this story. This comes from James Emery White. He writes the story on Christianity.com. The barracks where Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy were kept in the Nazi concentration camp Raven's book were terribly overcrowded and flea infested. They had been able to miraculously smuggle a Bible into the camp and in that Bible they had read that in all things they were to give thanks and that God can use anything for good. Betsy decided that this meant thanking God for the fleas. This was too much for Corey, who said she could do no such thing. Betsy insisted, so Corey gave in and prayed to God, thanking him even for the fleas. Over the next several months, a a wonderful but curious thing happened. They found that the guards never entered their barracks. This meant that the women were not assaulted. It also meant that they were able to do the unthinkable, which was to hold open Bible studies and prayer meetings in the heart of a Nazi concentration camp. Through this, countless members of women came to faith in Christ. Only at the end did they discover why the guards had left, had left them alone and would not enter their barracks. It was because of the fleas. This Thanksgiving, give thanks to God for every good 
and perfect gift. But also thank him for how he will use all things for good in the lives of those who trust him. God can use even the fleas. And so when Paul says, be thankful for all things at all times, even for the fleas of life, he knows what he's talking about. He understands that gratitude is good for our health and God is always working in ways that we don't think. In fact, we know that we have enough joy, really, as it says here in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything. And we know that we have enough joy to celebrate anything at any time. That's the reality. We have enough joy in Christ to celebrate life and a grateful heart is expressed through a heart of joy that just embodies everything life throws at us. And listen, I know, sometimes life throws really difficult things at us and we wrestle with you know, financial issues. We wrestle with, with health issues. We do. And it's a tough thing when we, when we battle health issues and it's like, boy, how do I find the gratitude in this? You can find it in Christ. Here's a second way that a, grat- a grateful heart is expressed through a life of service. Expressed through a heart of joy and then through a life of service. A life of service. Do you want to know if you have a grateful heart? Ask yourself, how do you do when it comes to serving others, when it comes to serving God? And the reality is, how do we serve God? But well, we learn this from Jesus, right? How do you serve God? You serve God by serving others. And Jesus came down primarily, number one, to serve the Father and to carry out the Father's will. But how did he serve the Father? He served the Father by serving us. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just think about how this whole issue really targets our sense of entitlement. If anybody deserved to be served, it would be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And yet the King of Kings came down and did what? He came down to serve. How amazing, how powerful is that? Jesus exemplifies this life of service. Now it's, this passage here is interesting because here's the context. Jesus is out with the 12 disciples and two of the disciples, the sons of thunder, James and John, that's how he nicknamed them, the two of them, well, their mom came to them. So we don't know if it was the mom's idea or James and John's idea. But they, their, their mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I got a special request. Can my sons have the two premier seats in the kingdom next to you? Can they sit in your most influential seats on your right and your left side? And uh, we don't know if that was James and John's thought or their mother's thought, but she asked him. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, guess what happened? Well, the other 10 disciples caught wind of James and John trying to muscle in and get the two best seats in the kingdom. And so they weren't very happy. Now why do you think the other 10 disciples weren't very happy James and John wanted those seats? Why do you think they were not happy? Anybody? Huh? Yeah, they're entitled to those seats. What are you talking about? If anybody gets to sit there, it should be me. So there's that sense of entitlement that seeps in and uh, really fights against this idea of humility and living a life of service that's the simple reality for us as christians our salvation should spur such gratitude in us that we accept our calling to a life of service here's what paul says second corinthians 5 for the love of christ which comes 
what through the gospel. That's the answer to our entitlement. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And if you have received Christ through the gospel and he is made alive in you and you have his life and his spirit in you, then you know what? You should be living a life of service. You should serve the Father by serving those around you. And that will wipe out that sense of entitlement that we so often struggle with. So Paul talks here, uh, and Jesus shows us, I should say, Jesus exemplifies this life of service, but he shows us the life of service really in three ways, and he keeps, keeps taking the life of service a little deeper. So the life of service starts with obedience. We serve through obedience. Service comes when we simply obey the Father. Back in Exodus chapter 19, 5, Jesus was right, or God was writing to the Israelites, and he said this about the Ten Commandments. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Here's the reality. Every generation of the Jewish people had the opportunity to be God's treasured people. All they had to do was simply live in obedience. They really simply had to treasure him. They had to treasure him above everything and everyone else. And if they would treasure him, he would treasure them and they would have an incredible relationship. Now, he wanted obedience, but you know what he didn't want or didn't expect? He didn't expect perfection. He didn't expect those Israelite people to live perfect lives. He knew they couldn't. In fact, you know what he did? He gave them this law right here. He said, okay, obey my law. And you know what he included in the law? The law was filled up with all the sacrificial system that they needed for the times they failed the law. Think about that a minute. Here's a law, you need to do these things. And by the way, part of the law is when you fail the law, here's what you do to get my forgiveness so we can continue to live in fellowship with one another. And uh, pretty, pretty amazing when you think about that. So God knew they couldn't keep that law and he included in the law the loophole for when they struggled and failed with the law and they could find forgiveness by keeping those sacrifices. Pretty amazing. Now, all of those sacrifices that they were to keep, all, all of them did what? They pointed to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. They pointed that one day there would be a real sacrifice that would come because none of us could live good enough lives. None of us could live perfect enough lives. And so one day Christ would come and put himself on the cross and be the sacrifice for us all. The Bible is explicit in the book of Philippians that when Jesus came and was the sacri- was the, was really served us, by being the sacrifice on the cross, he, it tells us that that was an act of obedience, that he was being obedient to the Father. In fact, let's look at this in Hebrews chapter five. In the days of his flesh, when Jesus was a human, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Pretty fascinating passage. Basically says that Jesus became perfect through his obedience. That doesn't mean he became sinless. It means he became complete. He became 
became perfected as a human being because he was obedient just as we have to be obedient to the Father. And there was a sense of obedience when he went to the cross. And so we think about serving God through serving others. It starts with just being obedient. But he takes it even deeper if you think about it. Back there in Mark 10, he, he talks here in, in Mark 10 about um, uh, being a slave of all. And there's this idea of surrender. That obedience comes next through surrender. So obedience leads to surrender. And if you won't surrender your life, Christ, before he went to the cross, the night before when he was arrested, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And there is a real sense where we can be obedient to God, but eventually it will cause us to, be, to surrender our very lives to him. And, and if we're unwilling to surrender our lives, we can't carry through with that obedience. Obedience eventually leads to surrender, a deeper form of service. And Christ took us there. And that's the reality. In fact, here's what he says. For this reason, the Father loves me, Jesus said, because I lay down my life. I surrender my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There's a sense of surrender. But you know what? Obedience through a service goes even deeper. It goes from obedience to surrender. Anybody want to guess what the third word is? Obedience to surrender to sacrifice. The one who gave his life as a ransom for many, who actually put his life on the cross and let them drive nails in his hands. And anytime we look at him on the cross and anytime we look at the gospel, any time, that just eradicates our entitlement, right? I don't, I don't have, there's nothing that I deserve. It is all the grace of God poured into my life. It, that, that is it. It's everything. And so a grateful heart is expressed through this idea of serving. I serve God by serving others. And I serve through my obedience, through my surrender, through ultimately my sacrifice. What am I willing to sacrifice so God can use me? to fulfill the gospel in my own world. A grateful heart is expressed through a heart of joy and through a life of service and then finally it is expressed through number three, a spirit of worship. A grateful heart is expressed through this spirit of worship. Do you have a spirit of worship within you? Do you have a spirit of worship that encompasses you all day? We often talk about how worship is more. It's more than just what we do on Sunday morning. It is 24-7, our week-long reality. And it is. A grateful heart will, will, will be witnessed in and expressed in a spirit of worship. Now, think about this. Think about worshiping God by looking up. And this is part of how we need to have this idea of worshiping all the time. And here's what he says in Colossians 3. Great verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, there's the gospel again, that forgives us of our sins and makes us alive in Christ and Christ alive in us. If you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Worshiping God by looking up and we express this grateful heart simply through a spirit of worship. 
We worship God when we get our eyes off of this world. We get our eyes off of our circumstances on him. When we get our eyes off of ourself and we look up for his heavenly perspective, scriptures tell us that his ways are higher than our ways, that he thinks in ways that we can't comprehend, and so we need to look up to get his heavenly perspective on life and what we're going through. Look up, Paul says, and set your affections on what is in heaven and not on this earth. So think about this spirit of worship. What does it look like, a spirit of worship look like? It looks like, uh, first it looks like uh, the Savior we sing to. The Savior, the one who came and carried out the gospel and we stand up here and we sing about the great things that he does. We sing about his incredible faithfulness in our life and there is the Savior that we sing to. When we pour out our praise in song, I, God loves that. He just loves it when we pour out our praise back to him. And I've said this countless times. There's all kinds of gods that are worshipped in the world. The only God I know that people actively write songs and sing songs to is Yahweh, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God of a hundred names. Luke chapter 1 46 and 47, the angel comes to Mary to tell her she's going to be the mother of Jesus. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And in her soul she was singing. This is called the Magnificat. And I, I think they, they consider this a song kind of that she sang back to the Lord. The Magnificat, if I got that right. Psalms 95, 1 and 2. The Psalms are, are so often combining this idea of gratitude and singing. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The rock of our salvation, the Messiah, the one who carried out the gospel in us and for us. Here's a little levity this morning. There are some songs that are just so good that it's hard not to sing along when they come on in the car. That was the case for Montreal native uh, Tufi um, Moala when the C plus C Music Factory's 1990 hit Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now, came on while he was driving. Moala began to sing along, presumably with some enthusiasm if you are familiar with the song. But quickly noticed police lights behind him. I was thinking they wanted to pass, but they called down the speaker, please go to the right side, he told reporters. I stopped and four police came, two on each side, and checking the inside of the car, they asked me if I screamed. I said, no, I was just singing. Montreal has varying bylaws depending on the neighborhood, but police apparently felt that this case fell under the category of noise resulting from cries, clamors, singing, altercations, or cursing in any form, other form of uproar prohibited in that part of the city. It earned the poor 38-year-old father of two a, a $118 ticket. I don't know if my voice was very bad and that's why I got the ticket, but I was very shocked, he said. An NPR article recounting the story concluded, what an amused question for the Montreal police. How do you not sing to this song? How do we not sing to our Savior though? How do we not go through the day and not sing to the one who set us free and gave us new life? And so a grateful heart is expressed through a spirit of worship that sings to its Savior and also the Father that we pray to. There's a Savior we sing to, there's the Father that we pray to. 
Philippians 4, rejoice, it says here. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer is an aspect of worship. It's how we declare our dependence of, on God. It's how we agree with God's word. It's, it's when we ask for God's intervention and God's power in our life. We just pray to God and say, oh, I just need you. You are my answer today. You are my sufficiency and my strength and my hope. We need to understand prayer is more than an avenue to get what we want from God, but it's our chance to agree with Him. It's our chance to mirror His heart and our chance to praise His name. A spirit of worship, and then there is also the three in one we give thanks to. We give thanks to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it tells us in Colossians 3, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And here's the, the point. See, the point is gratitude is kind of like this, this, this spirit that permeates my life and comes out of my heart. But thankfulness is when I specifically sig- signal out specific things I'm thankful for, and gratitude leads to thankfulness. And so thankfulness is when I am very specific, very deliberate in identifying those things I'm thankful for. That's the reality. So I give thanks for the relationships that support me and the church that encourages me, the creation that surrounds me, the food that feeds me, the spirit that guides me, the grace that overwhelms me, the word that sustains me, the life that fills me, and the God who holds me. I am grateful because I know I'm not entitled to any of these things. And so I actively stop throughout my day and just give thanks and say thank you for this and thank you for that and thank you for the next thing. I have, I have um, two questions I want to ask you here. In fact, you can play that first song you want. I want you to think about this question. What is one thing you are thankful for this morning? Give me 30 seconds. What's one thing you are thankful for this morning? Share. What are you thankful for this morning? What's your family? Your wife and family. 49. Anybody else? Salvation. What are you thankful for this morning? I see it on the tip of your tongue. Very good. Church. Anybody else? Don't be shy. What are you thankful for this morning? What'd you say? That God in heaven loves me. Isn't that awesome? Free country. Friends. Right. We all need friends. We need to just cultivate this, this thing of stopping and saying, what am I specifically, th- and being even more specific, I'm thankful for this buttered toast I'm eating for breakfast or I'm thankful for this flower that I've looked at outside my window and those things that just express our worship back to the Father. There's a second question and this one will take a little more time but you need to really dwell on this and think about this this week and it would be this question right here and um, 
lost control of my thing. We're not going to play another song. So what am I thankful for? Here's the second question. What is one entitlement that is working to my detriment by stealing my gratitude? And so you need to really process that this week. What is the one entitlement? Is there a big issue in my life that is, is stealing um, my entitlement, stealing my gratitude, this, this one area of entitlement? And I would really dwell on that. What I want to do here as we kind of come in for a, a close here this morning is I want to show you one last picture of really gratitude, the best picture of gratitude and show you where gratitude thrives and, uh, and so you can get an, get an idea of that. We've seen this morning again, um, as we're going to go deeper here with this, um, I have more than enough grace to eliminate the entitlement working to my detriment. We saw that our gratitude is expressed through a heart of joy, a life of service, and a spirit of worship. But here's the thing. Think about, if you want a great picture of, of grat- where gratitude runs rampant and where entitlement, just, just, you just won't find entitlement. If you want a great picture of that, you're going to find that up above in eternity in heaven. Just think about that. When you get to glory someday, there will be no entitlement in heaven. Gratitude, it, it will just... I just can't even imagine how, how much gratitude will course through the halls of heaven. There's, there's a thinking today in some churches that our number one responsibility is to kind of bring heaven to earth or kind of prepare uh, earth for Christ to come back. And I, I kind of disagree with that. I think our number one responsibility is to prepare people to leave this world and go to heaven. We're, we're to get ready to go to heaven here, not to make this place more like heaven because we'll never be able to do that. Um, should we make the world a better place to live? We should. We certainly should. And one of the ways that we could make this world a better place to live and more like heaven would be if we brought more gratitude into this world. That's one way the world would look more like heaven. And I don't think most people think of that. They always think of other things that would make the world look more like heaven. But I think gratitude, man. You want, for instance, how about this? You, you, you want your home to be more like heaven? How, how, would, how many would like a more heavenly home, right? Just rid out the entitlement. Just, just when you see entitlement in your life or, or, you know, or help your kids understand it in their own life and just get the entitlement out of your home and your home will be so much more like heaven heaven that is simply the reality that is simply the reality now here's the question why will heaven have so much gratitude and why will there be no entitlement in heaven what's the think about this little verse tucked away in the old testament and if you don't know this verse, you need to know it and remember it and write it down isaiah 49 16 behold i have engraved you on the palms of my hands What a great verse. Now, what does it even mean? How do we understand that? I don't exactly know. I just have this sense that whenever we look at the hands of our Savior that we sing to, when we look at his hands, somehow we will see our name engraved there. I think we'll see it in the scars. I think the scars in his hands will say, I I love you. I love you this much. And, And here's the reality. This is the thing. Is that when we're in heaven, for all of eternity, anytime we look at our Savior, we're going to see those scars and be reminded that nothing around us, we, didn't, we don't deserve anything around us, that, 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 that we're not entitled to this. This is all the gracious love and mercy of God. In eternity, the scars of Christ will always remind us of how entitled we aren't. That's the beautiful 
reality of heaven. And that's what we have to look forward to someday. And so Paul says, look up. Be reminded one day that you're going to go to this place where there will be no entitlement and, and, and everything there, you will just, just know that it's the grace of God. Look up, keep your eyes fixated on heaven. So here's what we're going to do. Let's watch this video and then we're going to sing one song to close and then we're going to go down and eat together. But watch this video as we just want to just, 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 just lift up your name in praise. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that eradicates the entitlement in our life that shows us how grateful we really need to be. Lord, if there is anybody in this room today that has never simply surrendered their life to you and simply said, well, I want you to come into my life and I want you to fill me. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I'm acknowledge, I acknowledge that you went to the cross and you gave your life for me. And I want you to come in and be my savior. That's, that's the gospel. That's how simple it is. Acknowledging our sin. Calling on the savior to come and to give us his life. And you will fill us and you will go with us through every day through everything. And that's, that's when we can really know joy in everything, in every moment. And if anybody today has never done that, Lord, I pray you'll speak to their heart and they'll just, right now in the privacy of their seat, say, Father God, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to come into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing with